From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I am joined by Vox policy writer Jerusalem Demsis. Hello, hello. And Nicholas Buttrick, who is a psychologist who will be joining the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a professor this fall. Welcome, Nick. Oh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. So we're going to be talking all about residential mobility today inside the United States, who moves, why they move, why people are moving less. Speaking of people moving, this is Jerusalem's last episode. Uh, She's leaving us for the oceanic climbs of the Atlantic, and we will miss her terribly. But we wanted to go out with an episode on one of her deep passions, which is mobility, cities, how to get people where they're going to flourish the most. And uh, a lot of Nick's recent work really touches on that. And so we we thought it would be ideal to to bring him in on the conversation. So Jerusalem, take it away. Yeah, this is going to be my my hobby horse, my swan song. Um, so let's just dive into it. So the big overarching trend that we started noticing, especially economists over the last 20, 30 years, is that Americans are moving less than ever. And they're also significantly less likely to move from poor regions to rich regions. Um, there's this phenomenon called convergence. It's happened between states for a long time where rich states and poor states kind of converge to each other. And around the 80s, that sort of grinds to a halt. And, you know, there's a big Birkin paper in 2017 that, you know, drew my attention to this, which talked about how annual movement within the U.S. was stuck at a post-war low rate of 11 percent. Annual mobility rates were over 20 percent during some years in 1950s and 1960s, and we're down to half of that today. So there's a really big problem going on. But bigger still that really drew my attention to this topic area is that We're seeing that after big economic shocks to different places, you know, in general, right, if something happens to your area and unemployment goes high, wages start declining, um, people tend to try to move somewhere where the economy is doing better. But what economists started noticing, especially David Autor had a big paper um, that we'll link to in the show notes about um, the China shock, is that people were actually more likely to drop out of the labor force or remain unemployed than actually move. So, Anyway, there's this big background going on, and uh, Nick just actually put out this paper talking about the cultural factors, that uh, cultural psychology factors that kind of play into this and how that plays into this entire change and how America has functioned for, for the past hundreds of years. Um, and so, Nick, just uh, if you can give us kind of like a preview, like what, what is actually happening here? Like, what do we know about the decline in interregional mobility? So I think that, you know, when we look at this psychologically, 
moving is hard. Uh, it's not easy to move from place to place. You have to completely reset your entire social life. Uh, when you go from one part of the world to another, you lose all the things that identified you in a place, all of the social relationships that tied you to a region. Um, you can't really identify yourself as, you know, so-and-so's brother or, you know, the person who lived down the road from, you know, from the hospital because the people in your new place don't know any of that. And so you have to present yourself as a completely new person. And that takes a lot of work. It's really not an easy thing to do. And so one of the things that we know is that when people move a lot, they get better at this. You know, you start to get a lot more fluent as identifying yourself as a person with certain sorts of innate qualities. I'm smart. You know, I have these certain sorts of roles which are legible. Once you move once or twice, it becomes easier potentially to move again and again because you don't have to tear yourself away from your roots in the same kind of way. So as a society starts to slow down its movement and sort of move less and less, it may be harder and harder for people to continue sort of marshal the psychological resources uh, to move again. Yeah, totally. And and I know in your paper, you kind of cite a lot of the research around declining residential mobility here. Can you talk a bit about the evidence we have for that decline? So the U.S. Census tracks mobility trends fairly well across the last 60-odd years. And it's pretty unequivocal that mobility in the United States is dropping. As you mentioned in, in the opening, we had a peak in the recent history in the 70s, and it's been almost a direct line down from then. So in the 70s, we had rates of mobility that were around 20-25% of the population. And today, that rate overall is down to about 10%. This seems to be happening around the country. It's not just localized to, to one region. Um, that Americans as a whole just aren't moving as much as they were. It's important to note that like there's still a lot of people moving in the United States. Like We've seen a massive decline, of course, but... A lot of people do actually are still moving. It's not the case that we have become an entire nation of homebodies, but this, it's a drastic difference in the past. And I want to be clear here that when we're talking about moving, we're not just talking about like, you know, someone going to college or a new, new job and packing up their stuff. We're also talking about like pretty traumatic events, right? We're talking about, you know, the Great Migration in which uh, Black Americans are fleeing the South for the West, for the North, uh, um, and for the Midwest uh, as they're fleeing Jim Crow. We're talking about... Um, People escaping really bad economic shocks to their area, which means a lot of pain, people losing their jobs, potentially families breaking up. But it is something that is pretty American in a way. Uh, and it's, it's shaped a lot of what America has looked like for a long time. So, Nick, can you talk a little bit about how America being a nation of movers has actually affected what American culture has looked like? One thing that's hard to imagine is just how much Americans used to move. So if you look back to the 1800s, you know, you had... You know, as best as we can tell, because the evidence is a little bit patchy, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of people moving in a city at any one given year to year. You had things like moving day in New York City, which was pretty much an unofficial city holiday. It was the first of May. And like everybody, it seemed like in the entire city was just like frantically playing uh, apartment roulette. Americans moved a lot. And you had things like the Great Migration, in which you know a really substantial proportion of the African-American population in the South uh, left and just moved north. And even more recently, you had things like white flight from cities to the suburbs, in which you have a lot of people sort of moving en masse from one part of the country to another. And what we think this helps people to do, in a sense, is it changes the way that they can relate to each other. 
when you move, you have to present yourself in a certain sort of way, but you also have access to a different set of groups of people. So if you live in the same place that you've lived your entire life and your parents have lived and your grandparents have lived, you have to be a little bit more careful. If you make a mistake, you know, if you uh, hurt somebody, if you somehow wrong somebody, you have to live with that forever. Um, you can't just up and leave. You know, if you have only 15 people you can be friends with and you do something wrong, now you have only 14 people you can be friends with and one lifelong enemy. So you have to be a lot more careful of your in-group. Uh, you have to be a lot more careful of the people around you. And your reputation really matters. And if you move, a lot of that stuff sort of gets wiped away. You know, you can start afresh. And, you know, American culture loves, you know, the traveling salesman, con man who goes from place to place, you know, starts <laughs> afresh uh, and then sort of outruns their demons and sort of keeps going, right? Like, it's just an archetype in our, in our culture. Because you can move to a new city and you can functionally become a new person. A lot of your reputation is left behind. And that's for both good and ill, right? You have to, when you get to a new city, you're judged not by what you did, but by what you're going to do. And so we think this supports a very sort of entrepreneurial vision of the world where your history doesn't matter nearly as much as your future. For listeners, this entire episode is kind of based around this paper that Nick and his co-author Shigehiro Oishi um, have put out called The Cultural Dynamics of Declining Residential Mobility. So it's kind of one big white paper episode. But one of the things that you point out is that the things that uh, feel right, right, like a mobile society is like more individual, more optimistic, more tolerant, and a stable society um, is more secure, has a strong sense of differences between in-groups and out-groups. And, and it sounds super intuitive to me, but how do you actually know that that's happening? Like, what are what are you using to figure out that that's actually occurring? Some of the things we do is we just ask people, you know, have you moved and how do you see the world? And so we can do things like ask people to define themselves. You give them a series of questions, a series of prompts. Who are you? And you ask them, say, I am, uh, and you just give them a bunch of blanks. And those people who have done a lot more moving will tend to say, I am an individual. You know, I am something about my characters. You know, I am smart. I am honest. I am trustworthy you know, things that are all about them specifically. Whereas those people who stay put tend to say things like, I am a part of a community. I am a son. I am a brother. Things that are much more relational and sort of binds them to other people. We can also look at places in which there's a larger collection of people who have moved to it um, mm -hmm. and there's, that are full of more mobile people. And those places look very different than the places where people tend to be settled for very long periods of time. You see different sorts of structures in more residentially mobile areas, things like megachurches, which are very good at getting people bound together into a community quickly, but that don't ask a whole lot of people's time because as people move, they want to be able to leave sorts of structures just as easily as they can enter them. And we can also look at the way that people relate to each other in sort of toy games that we can set up in the lab. You set up little uh, communities uh, in the lab where people are doing silly things like exchanging money for tokens. We can also say if we look at those communities which are full of people who have moved more recently, that are sort of full of more uh, movers, uh, they tend to look very different than those societies and those parts of societies that are more stable. And so you can see people worrying more about their reputations in these more stable places. And you can look at those places that are more mobile. And you can see that they treat social relations a little bit differently. Things like uh, the way that they worship looks very different. In more stable places, churches tend to be a little bit harder to get into and a lot harder to leave. 
they become things which become a much sort of more intense part of a community that are very tight-knit and that tend to require a lot of time and effort to really be a part of. Whereas worshiping in more mobile areas tends to be a little bit more easy entry, easy exit. You get megachurches, uh, which are really big, uh, can help knit you into a community really fast. But if you leave them, nobody really notices or cares. It's a much more frictionless way of uh, interacting with faith. So we can see the ways in which mobility allows people to interact with each other differently helps to shape not just who they are, but the very communities in which they, uh, they find themselves embedded. And one thing that I thought was interesting is that your paper, uh, while this is something I've, I've paid attention a lot to in the United States, your paper finds that this is generalizable to countries outside of the U.S. I think we tend to think of the U.S. as being exceptional in its mobility. And we don't think it necessarily is. It's been a bit harder to track mobility trends in other nations. So we can look back at, at places like Europe, uh, uh, Korea, Japan, and we can track how changes in residential mobility have affected the way that citizens of those countries seem to look at the world. And what we find is, in all these uh, parts of the industrialized world, when we have increasing mobility, people in those societies tend to seem as if they live in a more dynamic place. So they are more optimistic, more entrepreneurial, they're more tolerant of outsiders. Uh, and similarly, when trends in mobility go the other way, when those countries become more static, more stable, we see the reverse, more pessimism, more xenophobia, uh, and less optimism about what's coming over the bend. And this controls for things like GDP. So it's not just about uh, the fact that a slowing country might be getting poorer. Uh, it seems to be specifically, we think, about mobility. So we are going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to dive into my real hobby horse, which is why exactly this might be happening. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. 
In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. We are back. So we're actually taping this episode on Thursday, March 3rd. And a decision just came out of California Supreme Court, which ruled that the University of California, Berkeley, would have to rescind 3,000 acceptances because a group of (laughs) uh, NIMBYs has essentially sued under the state's Environmental Protection Act, saying that, you know, increasing numbers of students in the area are actually essentially calling them pollutants. Um, these are individuals who are that more population, more students here and not building more housing specifically on land that the University of California Berkeley owns was a detriment and a burden on the community at large. You know, they said a bunch of different things, including, you know, people in Berkeley don't like the fact that there are college students who live in their neighborhoods now and that these kids have parties and stuff like that. They don't also want to have, you know, <laughs> Berkeley zone for more dense multifamily housing such that you would actually have uh, an area that could support a growing population. Anyway, this is an absurd, uh, horrible ruling that's basically leading to not only the 3,000 Berkeley students who thought they were going to be accepted no longer going there, but also has cascading effects for students who are accepted to other UCs or other schools who are now going to be either never get off the wait list or have their applications rescinded or will not be able to have access to their schools, um, the school they thought that were going to for whatever reason. So, So do you think this is good or bad, Jerusalem? I can't tell. Oh, is it? I, I know. I'm, I'm worried that my opinion isn't clear, so I'll be a little bit harsher. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, the reason why this ties into what we're talking about here is that um, there are a bunch of different reasons we're going to dive into as to why it is that mobility has been declining. But a big one that we've talked about in the show a lot is about the failure for places that are growing, that are economically um, dynamic to expand and allow for new people to live there. And one of those ways are these zoning regulations and these land use regulations that exist that limit the supply of housing. And of course, the ways in which that we've allowed local winners in these places to basically hoard these lucrative labor markets. Um, And, you know, Berkeley is one example of that, but there there are countless others. When people talk about the psychology of moving, demographers often talk about it's a multi-stage process. You have to want to move you have to know how to move, you have to have somewhere to go. And when you make it a lot harder for people to find new housing, it becomes a lot harder to move because people literally can't go where they want. So restricting housing is a really huge problem just because it really restricts the ability of people to make the jump, even when they want to. You know, one of the things that we know is that Americans may still want to move in similar rates as they did in the 70s, but their ability to actually do it has dropped precipitously. One researcher suggests that people are about 45% less likely to move now when they want to uh, than they were uh, a generation ago. It's not necessarily that Americans want to stay where they are, though many of them are perfectly happy where they live. They just don't have the ability to get where they want to be. So if you were to liberalize housing, it might make it a bit easier for people to actually get where they want. 
one of the countervailing um, explanations for what, what's, what's going on here is that America is just kind of getting older. I know you just kind of mentioned this idea that, you know, potentially preferences have stayed the same. But there's some evidence that, like, preferences have actually changed because of the aging population. Dylan, I know we just talked about this a couple weeks ago with, with Brian, but I, I do think this has to be a big part of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, moving is largely a thing done by the young. That seems to be pretty, pretty well established because it's easier for people to move when they're young. They have fewer encumbrances. Um, right? You don't have to bring a family with you in the same sort of way necessarily. And this is actually a huge problem in the U.S. as well because moving is increasingly expensive and people who are younger have less money. One of the things that we think partially helps to explain the large drop-off in mobility over the past you know, 40 years is... Uh, increasing inequality, um, and the sort of shredding of the social safety net. We don't think it's uh, necessarily uh, an accident that as the government stepped back from providing for its citizens, we see decreases in one of the most expensive things you can do, which is move. So it may be now that only the old can move because they're the only ones who have the money to actually do it. When you say that that uh, moving is getting more expensive, is is that sort of a function of of zoning and other things making the destination more expensive, or is the actual like process of hiring mo- movers, transporting your stuff, getting set up in a, a a new place, independent of housing costs, going up too? We think it's mostly housing costs. I think that you know I don't have any good data on you know how much it costs to hire a mover, um, but housing costs obviously are rising very, 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 very fast. Um, you know, inflation might be catching some of these other things, but I don't think that's the major the major issue. And I think it's important to know there, there, there are other policies that kind of are inhibiting moving as well. Uh, you know, the Captured Economy Project at the Niskanen Center has talked a lot about occupational licensing and how that restricts people's, you know, ability to move from state to state. So, you know, there are a bunch of jobs. Uh, they write that around 25 percent of American workers need a state license to do their job. That's up from 10 percent in 1970. Um, these are people from cosmetologists to contractors to like a variety of different things. And most of the time, these sorts of licensing requirements are enacted under the idea that it is for health and safety. Like, you need to have a cosmetologist who is licensed so that you are actually able to, you know, you're not going to have any issues with um, getting sick in these establishments or anything like that. But they do find that, you know, while it's under the guise of consumer protection, like very, there there are tons of discrepancies that show this, like, is probably not what's actually going on here. Um, You know, in most states, they say it takes 12 times longer to get a license to cut hair as a cosmetologist than to get a license to administer life-saving care as an EMT. So that doesn't really seem to be what's animating here. Some studies show that you're not actually getting your bang for your buck in terms of increased um, safety in places that have more stringent uh, um, licensing procedures. Um, but the reason why this really matters is like, let's say you're a teacher and you have to get a different state exam anytime you go to a different state. Like, that's a lot of work and effort and time. And it's annoying and it's costly and it reduces your time that you actually have um, where you are making money. And so if you're considering moving from like, uh, you know, California to Idaho or whatever it is, that is just yet another barrier to doing that. So I think it's important to think about how many of these regulations are coming uh, because of how each state does things differently in terms of licensing um, for different jobs. But even beyond those kinds of things, there's also a bunch of things that keep people in place, right? Beyond just like, oh, it's difficult to get somewhere I want to go, there are a bunch of things incentivizing you to stay where you are. Homeownership is one of those things. Homeownership rates are generally have been rising over the time period we're talking about here. You owning a home means that you're likely to want to stay in a place because it's costly to sell your house. And also you're embedded in that community for a variety of different reasons. And also there are tax benefits to it, right? 
right? Like that you have from remaining a homeowner. And there are also a bunch of different things where, you know, David Schleicher, uh, who's a Yale Law professor who I've cited numerous times in the show, he has this paper called Stuck, the Law and Economics of Residential Mobility. And he he cites a bunch of different things, including public employee pensions, homeownership tax subsidies, state and local tax laws, and even basic property law doctrines that incentivize people staying in those places because you're basically getting uh, monetary benefits from staying where you are. So none of these things are entirely new, but they've piled up. And also people have gotten older, so they're able to take advantage of these things much more. And so it's not just that the places like California and New York are making it difficult for you to go there, but also that the places where you're in right now are making it difficult for you to leave. One thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Nick, is there seem to be sort of these profound changes in personality and outlook that sort of result from uh, declining mobility that's caused by some other reasons. Is there a fear that this could be kind of a self-perpetuating cycle where the impediments to moving have created people who are more comfortable with not moving, which even if those impediments were at some point removed, could lead to kind of different attitudes towards packing up and leaving than than had been there before those impediments existed. Yeah, I think that there's research suggesting this is the case. Moving is in some sense, it's a learned behavior. It's something that you have to learn how to do because it does take a lot of different steps. And there's some suggestion that people who have been moved before the age of 18 are a lot more likely to move later in life than those who were stable throughout that period. And so if you have a society of people that tend to stay where they are, we think that there's leads, based on purely procedural stuff, to people continuing to stay where they are. And it might be exactly that self-perpetuating cycle. I think one of the things that's also really interesting is you learn how to move, I think, not just from your family, but also from the people who are around you. If you're in a society which, for example, doesn't let immigrants in, you know, people who have had to move into a place, and you're not surrounded by people who have moved to where you are, um, you're even more likely to stay put because you don't even have role models in terms of what it looks like to integrate a new person into your community or to think about what it means to look beyond the immediate boundaries of the people that you see every day. So if you have a very stable community, we think it can turn stagnant simply because you just don't know otherwise. One of the things that I noticed, too, is that there's like racial differences in who is actually able to move. Can you talk a little bit about how it's different for for Black Americans versus white Americans? Yeah, I think this partially comes back to economic issues that Black Americans haven't had the same ability to acquire wealth in this country uh, than white Americans due to things like redlining and racist covenants and, and things like that. So what you often find in cities is areas of deep government disinvestment which are the only places in which Black Americans have been able to live for, you know, a generation or so. So when you're having to fight against not just not being able to acquire the wealth to move, but also being in communities that prevent you from getting basic services, you have to fight essentially neighborhood tax in order to make it through your day, which makes it a lot harder to think about, you know, getting all the stuff together in order to make the multi-step process that moving requires. Because moving isn't something that just happens in a moment. It's something you have to plan for, something you have to work out. And if you don't have the bandwidth to work through that, uh, if you don't have the money to work through that, you find that uh, Black Americans are even less likely to move than white Americans. And this is a trend that's actually been accelerating uh, for some time. I think that's true. I've got to double check the Jacob Foster paper, <laughs> but I think that that's the, the finding that... Uh, you see an even bigger discrepancy that Black Americans have wanted to move actually at higher rates than white Americans, if I remember this right, but that uh, they simply haven't been able to. 
um, yeah. partially because they don't have the means. And also because, at least until fairly recently, you know, a lot of neighborhoods were simply ruled out for them. Um, you yeah. couldn't move into these places because you had very racist neighbors. There's research I... Um I'm recalling that we will link in the show notes as well, that um, while declining interstate mobility might be due to changing preferences for white Americans, whether it's increased preferences for stability due to aging or or all the factors we've already talked about, Black Americans are increasingly unable to move when they expect to. So it's definitely something where, you know, many of these explanations can coexist and, and you don't have to pick one of these things. I also think that one of the big reasons that we're we're talking about this is because it would not be that big of a deal that people were not moving that much if America had figured out how to do place-based policies where you could invest in declining regions and make them as good as places that are already dynamic and economically prosperous. So a, a big factor here that we're, you know, that, that it's important to note is that it's really, really difficult to um, say like, okay, people can't move to opportunity anymore. They can't move from declining states or declining regions to places that have better jobs for them. When you can't invest and figure out a way to bring dynamism to those places. A big part of what's going on here is just that it seems like a foundational need for a place to feel dynamic and prosperous for new businesses and things like that is that it has increasing population. And so these, this entire problem is kind of like, you know, self-referential in that way where like you want to fix the problem of a place is declining and people can't move somewhere where it's better, but you can't do that unless you get people to kind of move to the place that's declining, which is difficult to do because of all the things we've already talked about. So, okay, anyway, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what this uh, actually means for the future of the country. If people continue to move less and less, what do we expect to see for inequality? What do we expect to see for America's changing culture? Everything like that. So stay tuned. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back. So... 
the big takeaway, right, that I, I got from your paper is not just that Americans are finding themselves locked into places that they wish to escape, but that as residential mobility is down, uh, you find um, correlations with lower levels of happiness, lower levels of fairness, and lower levels of trust among all Americans. So can you just talk a little bit about that finding? How did you get that finding? Um, I know it's kind of a correlation. It's really difficult to, to prove causation with something like that. And, and what do you think that's going to mean for the future? For that study, we took advantage of the fact that there's a long-running social science study that's uh, been put together by a bunch of uh, scientists at the University of Chicago. And they've been tracking American attitudes since the 70s. Every year, they get a nationally representative sample of Americans, and they sort of just ask them a huge barrage of questions about how they're feeling. And since the 70s, they've been asking about how happy people are, how much they trust others, and how much they think that others will treat them fairly. And what we find is that in years when there is less residential mobility, Americans on the whole are less happy, less trusting, and essentially think that they're going to be treated less fairly. And it's a pattern uh, that is fairly strong, and it's uh, fairly linear because American mobility has been decreasing at this, this linear rate. So we're pretty confident it's not about economics. It's not even about immigration, um, but that we get this correlation as one of these uh, time series goes down, so too does the other. And so we know it's not experimental. Like We, we can't sort of lock somebody into a place <laughs> and then uh, see how their behavior changes. But we can look at other panel studies, which track people over time. And in these studies, we can see that when a person has wanted to move, but is in the same place the next year, their outlook darkens. Uh, they tend to think that America maybe isn't living up to its promise, they're themselves less optimistic, and they're maybe a little bit even more resentful of the successes of others. But if they do move, if the people who want to move and actually make the move, uh, we find that they're more optimistic. You know, having actually been able to follow through on something that you want to do brightens your outlook. I know, um, you know, we, we've belabored this point a little bit, but like, I think the, the the primary question someone might ask in response to this is like, oh, well, like, is this just about other things, like whether it's economic issues or whatever? But, you know, things like unemployment and GDP growth are usually cyclical, but mobility rates have been declining pretty steadily since 1948 through both booms and busts. And so, like like they mentioned, it has been pretty, pretty linear what we're seeing here. Um, and I, I want to just delve in a little bit more because I feel like you you get really into your paper about the ways in which it could be like decreasing happiness. And there's one thing that you mentioned, which is just like what happens to people who find themselves stuck when they don't want to be. And of course, maybe there's something particular about those people. Like are these people who are likely to kind of not have good social connections already? And so they want to move because they don't have their people in that place. And, and it, it, is that what's driving it here? Or is it something else like they feel like they have lost opportunity they would rather have in the future? somewhere else. So we don't know for sure. We have to do a lot of inferential work, but at least theoretically what we think is likely going to happen in these sorts of situations. If if you want to move, you know, you've already started to potentially pull back some of your social network, right? If you're trying to get out, you're maybe not as interested in uh, spending a lot of time deepening your community ties, you know, and spending a lot of time working to gain new friendships or to maintain the friendships you already have because you're trying to get out. But if you can't then get out, um, you might have all of the problems that come with residential mobility, you know, having trouble potentially making friends, maybe not being quite as able to connect within your community, not really knowing maybe what your place is in the world, and none of the benefits of residential stability. You don't have these deep ties, these deep networks, because you're trying to leave, right? You're trying to sever all that stuff. So it might be a uniquely 
unfortunate uh, space to be in socially. Uh, and that we think would likely play out into the rest of your life. Not to mention the fact that when you want to move, usually you're trying to move away from something uh, in this sort of case. If you want to get out, but you can't yet, you know, there's something that's pushing you away from that place. And that thing is going to continue to push and push and push. And if you can't escape it, it can't be good for your uh, your overall well-being. In, in terms of kind of like the economic impacts here, I think what's um, I f- there's this one paper that I thought was great. It's um, Emi Nakamura um, and her co-authors talk about the effects of a 1973 volcano eruption um, where an Icelandic town had to be evacuated. And um, many people returned to their homes if they were still standing. But for people whose homes were destroyed, they're significantly less likely to return for obvious reasons. Um, and <laughs> the authors found that children whose families were forced to leave following the destruction of their homes were more likely to have a, quote, large increase in long-run labor earnings and education. Specifically, the authors say, they causally estimate uh, an effect of moving of $27,000 a year or close to the doubling of the average earnings of people whose homes were not destroyed. I mean, this is an absolutely massive effect here. (laughs) Um, I think it is one of the bigger effects found. Um, Nakamura is great, so uh, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on this finding, but I just, I do think it it illustrates kind of like the magnitude of what it means to move. And so, do you have thoughts on like what kind of drives people to have or I mean, in, in this paper, they kind of differentiate between the parents who's who are bearing a lot of the costs of being forced to leave their area and the kids who are getting a lot of the benefits um, and later in life. So do, do you have thoughts on like what's going on here? Like if you're forced to move, there's not like a selection effect. There's no reason like that a volcano would pick like more dynamic people <laughs> to, to destroy their homes or whatever. So so do you have thoughts on that? It could definitely have some psychological long run benefits in a sense that if you move to a new place, you have to recreate yourself. You have to, in some sense, put the old things aside. And especially if you're moving into an economy which requires a certain sort of dynamism, you're going to be more likely to be able to act as an individual in an individualist sort of society. And so I think partially the Icelandic example like requires people to move into a community that's getting ready to take advantage of all of the, the traits that are created by mobility. I think if they'd moved into a more collectivist society, it might not have gone nearly as well. I think that you have this lovely match there between a society that's getting ready to sort of do capitalism and people who are able to act more entrepreneurially um, because they have fewer connections to other members of their society. And I think one other finding that you have is you look at the survey of 16,000 Americans and you find that people who wanted to move but remained at the same address the following year are more likely to disagree that hard work can help a person get ahead, Um, even when controlling for a bunch of things like socioeconomic status, health, age, race, etc. And you write, the wanting to move but being able to leave leads people to wonder about whether their other efforts in life will be rewarded. And I mean, this kind of feels like that has, you know, like much broader implications than just kind of feeling unhappy, right? Choosing where you live and sort of choosing who your friends are is really important in a mobile society like the United States. Uh, We very much prize the ability to get into and out of certain sorts of friendships. And if you live in a society like that, and all of a sudden you can't choose where you live, you can't choose the social environment in which you're able to, for example, raise your kids, you know, that's fundamental to our identity as people. And if you're sort of stifled in this very fundamental way, it really should strike at the very heart of like who you are as a person and what you think the possibilities are for people who are you or like you uh, in the future. 
to be the collectivist in the room for a second, we've been talking a lot about the the downsides of and sort of the the negative psychological consequences of low mobility. One concern I hear a lot from people in rural areas is, yes, it would be great if kids and families growing up here had more opportunities to move elsewhere, but there's a lot of fear of a kind of brain drain dynamic where the sort of most talented, entrepreneurial, ambitious members of of your town and all end up leaving and what's left behind suffers as a result. Um, And you you hear this uh, concern with, with different countries, of course, but it can also conceivably happen within the U.S. Do you see sort of negative psychological consequences, either in your work or in other people's areas where lots of people do leave among people who are remnants? Or is there a kind of trade-off between the flourishing of the community and the flourishing of the individuals in it? There definitely is evidence that, you know, when you have a lot of people leaving an area, it changes the area that people have left. So there's work showing that individualists tend to be the ones who leave if given the choice. And when you have large migrations, the people who are left behind tend to be more collectivist the areas that all the individualists move to tend to become more individualist, and the areas that all the individualists move away from uh, tend to become more collectivist. So I don't know if I necessarily call it a a brain drain per se, but it does seem to change the tenor of these communities. And I want to also just like point out that I don't think that staying in one place is bad. I think it actually could be really good if it's something that you want. I think that there's lots of psychological benefits to being from a place, to being very rooted, to sort of knowing the history of the place and, you know, knowing the history of the soil and being sort of really enmeshed in a deep lineage and sort of giving yourself a really strong sense of home. I think that can be really supportive and give you a really lovely base from which to potentially try things out because, you know, you always have like a home to return to. And most Americans do want that. I think you know, the vast majority of Americans tend to be happy with where they live. But where we worry is for those people who want to be leaving, but can't, because they might not be looking for that deep, rich home. They might be looking to sort of get into the fast-paced, exciting city, or looking to be you know, leaving their under-resourced neighborhood, and simply by dint of uh, public policy or economic resources, uh, they simply can't. Like That seems the mismatch is where we think the problem is. And generally, it seems like obvious that if there are large costs to moving, that the people who are necessarily able to overcome those costs are likely to be probably better situated economically than the people who are left behind. I mean, we know this in general with immigration. People who leave, you know, obviously often they're leaving their themselves very disadvantaged for various reasons, but they tend to be like slightly less disadvantaged than the people that end up leaving behind, um, whether it's because of disabilities, whether it's because of illnesses or just, you know, people who are older. That does feel like a situation where you're going to have distributional consequences if it becomes situation where only wealthier people can leave as the people the places that are left behind are increasingly kind of devoid of the both the individualists and and the money that they tend to have. But you do mention in you know in favor of stability this this idea that the non-movers often are the ones who are promoting the type of social cohesion that can make a lot of the benefits of living in a place possible. Can you talk a little bit about like what those non-movers actually provide to a community? I think there's something to be said for collective memory, but there's also something to be said for having a really strong in-group. You know, if you have a group to whom you're responsible for, you know, these are people who are responsible for you. You know, the flip side of reputation is people who care whether or not you succeed or fail. So if you're in a community that does have these very strong community ties because, you know, everybody knows each other and is knowing each other forever, 
while messing up, in some sense, brings with it long-term consequences, it also brings with it people who will try to repair that. You know, if you're in a group in which there are only, let's say, 15 people, you know, the success or failure of any one of those people really matters. And so the community is going to pull together to make sure that all those people succeed. And so you get this ability to, to know that people have your back, which potentially can allow you to try some sorts of things that you might not if you're working without a safety net. So you can take different sorts of risks than living in a community in which nobody knows you and nobody cares uh, whether you live or die. And broadly, it feels like the big thing here is not saying that, you know, everyone should be a mover or everyone should be a stayer, but that there's like a good balance in terms of making sure that you're actually allowing for the people who want to move to move and the people who don't not to, especially given the fact that a lot of this is sort of dependent on where you are in your life cycle. At some point in your life, like you're going to be a mover and at some points you're not going to be a mover. Like if you have children and you want them to go to the same school for 12 years, it's going to be a different you than the person who is an empty nester and like looking to see what happens happens then for them. And so, you know, I think that that's what's important here is that it's not a question of kind of pitting different kinds of people against one another and whose interests actually end up winning out. But given that like you want to make sure it's easy to go when you want to go because it's going to happen to you or your children or someone that you care about at some point that it's, it's going to be better off for them to be able to leave when they need to go. Thank you so much for being here, Nick. Thank you so much to Jerusalem for today and for for every weeds that you've been on over the last few months. It's really been a joy and we will miss you terribly. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.